Desperation. Yeah, Desperate. Right. Hey, time for us to desperate and have a good uh, tack. Tack. I didn't say tack. tack. You said tack. 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 I didn't say tack. Tack a one. You said tack. Tack. I didn't. I didn't. Uh, attack to you all, Tackertons. <laughs> this is cock. Tack. Cock. <laughs> this is cock. Cock. Tack. Kings um, they're of like, King. They're like, go back to the music parody. Yeah. <laughs> Not the Tourette's, whatever this is. Um, yeah, it's Kings of King, <laughs> uh, which we sometimes call cock and sometimes call tack cock when it's appropriate, which, uh, hey, wouldn't you know what it is right now? I'm Michael Swaim. Hey, I'm Abe Epperson. And we're here to desperate and have a good time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're talking about... Stephen King's Desperation, and uh, as we always do, cover a, an adapted work of Stephen King. This one's a made-for-TV movie of mm-hmm. the year. Abe usually knows 2006. This. 2006. 2006. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, should we just get right into it? Or I think so. I mean, this is just kind of one of the standalone episodes, you know? Yeah. We're like in it now, and we're just like churning. Yeah, we We're don't have any meta stuff to say king. about the state of the show or anything no. like that. No, I think that's right. So let's slide right in mm-hmm. to Under the Dome. Our best guess puts the dome at 20,000 feet, sir. Did he just call it a dome? You think we might be stuck in here a This while? is good because um, I do have a ton to say about this movie, but, uh, you know, you got to wait for the right segment before you yeah, get yeah. off the bus. Everything in its right place. So this is the segment where we synopsize... Um, the thing as if we were aliens observing it um, from high <laughs> under a dome. I finally words, get it. It's under, yeah, it's just a plot it's under synopsis. a dome. Who wants it's to not, do it? Well, it's. Good, okay. I don't know if people. I mean, we can share it if you want. I don't know how many of y'all have recently watched the made-for-TV version of Desperation. It is available on Amazon Prime, so you very well could have. Uh, and if you did, just for the purposes of listening to this, we're honored. But for those who didn't, i.e. the majority of you, Abe, who's going to recap Desperation? Uh, I can do. Oh, God. It. Thank you. Okay. Uh, okay. Because yeah. full disclosure, I watched it a, a full week ago, which is a little mm. longer than you should do if you're going to recap something successfully. Right. That's true. I watched it on a few days ago, so I'm a little bit better. So we're in the Nevada desert. Um, there's a town. It's a ghost town. Uh, it's called Desperation. But the way in which we kind of uh, entry to that is that we open up on our first two characters, Peter and Mary Jackson. They're driving and they're stopped by a sheriff, Colleen Tragen, who is uh, played by Ron Perlman. He basically is very awkward and uh, kind of terrifying. But then things take a turn when he gets he opens their trunk and finds that they have a huge bag of weed so he takes him you know into the back of his uh his car and he drives to the police station of desperation as they drive through they see a bunch of people dead on the ground and it's very clear that uh this town this whole town is basically dead and he seems to be the only person in the town uh they walk through some more dead bodies as they go to the their jail cell uh, in which at one point, uh, Ron Perlman says to them that he's going to kill them, uh, but then immediately acts like he didn't say that. He also has this strange tick 
that over the course of the film starts to become more pronounced, which is that he'll just randomly throw in the word tack into anything that he's saying, which we learn later has to deal with his he is possessed. He is a possessed man. He's probably a dead man. We meet several other people who are also in jail cells. So he's basically just running. uh, He's basically just kidnapped a bunch of people. Um, And I don't know. Did you want to pull anyone out? I didn't think it was very important Mm -hmm. to say who was there. There's like a a doctor. uh, But the most important. I just wrote. You know, townspeople, jail, townspeople. we meet them all. They're there. They're there. <laughs> uh, and they have a di- they have opinions on stuff, you know, because each of people. them. It's exactly like a novel would be. Each of them it's has their little King. perspective. You get to know it. <laughs> right. And they're, you know, it's fodder like the for dead. Yeah. You, you know, you kind of know how it goes. But the important one is David. David's this important, boy. you guys. He's important. He's a special boy and he gets his own cell. (laughs) He gets his own cell. And uh, he is apparently we learn over their conversations that he has some kind of communion with God. He can somehow like God is basically talking through him or to him. Uh, It's very unclear at this point, but um, he reveals that he like he prays to God and God made his presence known to him. By saving his friend Brian from the brink of death in an earlier, like, which is kind of one of the most hilarious scenes that I've ever seen in a flashback. They just, they, they launch this kid against the wall. <laughs> it's just, it's ridiculous. Right. Uh, he just, his head is entirely But then crushed. his mom's like, but how could God exist? Because we just saw Colin and Tragian shoot your sister in the head. Like, yeah, how could God exist? Exactly. So they're exactly. immediately so, odds. Yeah. Um, the meanwhile, uh, so while they're talking, the reason that uh, the reason that uh, they can get away with this is that Ron Perlman is then now gone out uh, out to the road again to canvas for like some more gathering people. people. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And he meets a famous author. Ding, ding, ding. Oh Stephen God, King, dude. Johnny <laughs> Marinville, who is played by Tom Skerritt, uh, who is like an old. He's basically a has-been biker, I guess. But, but I mean, maybe it's not that's being mean. It's not that he's a has-been. It's that he's at the you know twilight of his, of his but life. But it absolutely kind of is as if Stephen King wrote a story and it was like, and I'm there. And I'm on a motorcycle. I got a leather jacket. <laughs> yeah. He like stops to urinate in the desert uh, and just, you know, of course, Ron Perlman appears in a cop car. Like- all of us have experienced from time to time. Uh, and he shows up and it's very clear that he's been like planting these marijuana bags because he keeps finding them. And it's like literally the same bag. Yeah. So like, he's basically like, he's just a liar. He's a cop. He's a liar. He's possessed. He's starting to say tack. He's at this point, his face is now becoming, uh, covered in sores. Um, yeah. So that's so basically uh, now now he's, he's scooped up Johnny and Johnny's kind of our ad hoc protagonist. It's very strange. He's it's kind Han of Solo, an bro. He's Stephen King. Han he's kind of. Yeah. So he's brought a wild into the card. Mix. Loose cannon. He gets the job done. Mm. Uh, and then what happens? Then we have. Um, uh, then we have like David realizes 
that yeah, there's a scene where David basically realizes that um what's Oh, he wrong drags the mom is, out in the night. That's what the he big He drags the mom out point. in the night and uh off screen, we haven't seen it yet. Uh Ellen is her name. Uh is uh he, like Ron Perlman's out of the picture. Now Tack, the name of this thing possess- that has like, Ron Perlman. The thing that yeah, has now possessed Ellen, which is revealed when David like soaps himself up with like a bar of soap while he's in his jail cell mm-hmm. so he can slip through the bars because he's like small enough to do it. And as he goes out, he sees a bunch of dead people, more dead people. Uh, he also sees some <clears throat> sinister imagery. Uh, there, that's the other thing is that we have a kind of inner. Oh, and he's like, uh, at one moment he meets the lesser known brother from Wings. He's like, "Hey, I loved you on Wings, Stephen." Oh yeah, I forgot entirely they about over that. Uh, <laughs> Stephen Webber, <yeah. laughs> right? So uh, s- s- uh, they also Steve find Weber, a bunch of dead bodies. Steve. They just kind of dick around in the ghost town they and have dick haunted it's stuff very happen to them. Maximum overdrive. Yeah, but um, yeah, uh, Steve Webber's there, and he works for. Johnny, the uh, the older, the Tom Skerritt fella, the older motorcyclist, and he's following him around because he has like his hog in the back. Like he's he's like the roadie equivalent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was like basically texting with, or he's trying to call uh, during the whole Ron Perlman incident. Uh, so now basically uh, by the time that we get back to the like the intercuts where we're now following um David uh, slipping through the bars and whatnot. We're also following this other character, Stephen, who's picks up a hitchhiker, uh, Cynthia, and uh, they're just searching around town to try to find uh, Johnny um, just because Johnny kind of sent an SOS via phone. Um, That night, they kind of meet up with other escaped prisoners from the jail. Yeah. Yeah. At the theater, because basically uh, they all broke out. because of um, little like soapy David, David. Which, little soapy David uh, opens out. jail cells. But then uh, uh, you find out, oh, Ellen slash Tack can talk to animals, so she asks some spiders, "Where did they go?" And the spiders are like, "They went to the theater." And she Something... asks a mountain lion, "Can you attack them?" And it goes, "Yeah, <laughs> yeah." Uh, so <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing is that throughout this movie, and I've just kind of failed to mention it, just because it's like more flashbacks. Uh, and just like random edits during the transition sequences, we're getting a lot of animal imagery. Like there's cats that have been like nailed up, crucified, yeah, and crucified all around like the uh, the speed limit signs and um, just like everywhere there seems to be animals. They're literally like taking over the town, and it's usually like scorpions, snakes, uh, cougars. It's like desert animals. Um, but yeah, so he's kind of connected. We, we get this general sense that with the possession, he's controlling spiders kind of thing. And the only way that Ellen really knows where they're at is, yeah, sends a cougar to say, like, go find them. But also at one point, a bunch of spiders go around a picture of the movie theater so it's like there's some weird connection to the animals uh the animal spirits or like what they're seeing but also i love that they could only communicate if you happen to have a picture of the answer to the question around Mm. you (laughs) yeah exactly um so yeah while they're uh while steven the um 
while they're sorry, just while they're dicking around at the theater, also oh, wearing, okay. wearing Hudsucker, the old man character, tells them all about the history of the town and the China Pit, which is a big hole near right, town. Yeah, exactly. And he's like, I bet that's where all this evil shit's coming from. And the movie, like, pretty quickly lets you know, yeah, he's right. That is, that's where it's coming from. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we see some ghosts in the theater. Uh, and we see old footage, specifically, the ghost leads David to see through like a supernatural like um projector like vision. Yeah. yeah projector of like how tech came <laughs> basically to the exposition the yeah yeah it basically just says everything and um uh meanwhile we kind of cut to uh we kind of so i think the ghost i think that's who they're saying pi was i didn't know who's the ghost's relation was to everyone else's it's sure. just a little girl that we kept seeing uh, that was unclear. Oh, to me. I thought that was Pi. Yeah, David chases a vision of Pi. Is what I wrote. Right. And then Hudsucker gets killed by the mountain lion. Right. 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 Oh, um, but I did write. Why does Pi dress like a Victorian schoolchild? Is this a ghost <laughs> from the past? <laughs> yeah. Right. So at one point, so now oh, then we I, get the sorry. Johnny what? hallucinates that the wildcat is a Viet Cong, so he kills it. That's is, definitely a scene. Delightful. Um, now. So Ellen, the possessed, uh, possessed by attack, uh, uh, as mentioned, has this mountain lion, uh, you know, just doing their bidding. They actually kill one of the uh, one of the like prisoners or like the escapees. And then Ellen abducts one of the uh, women that's with the, the party and takes and she wakes up and finds herself like trapped in a shed. Uh, with a bunch of scorpions and tarantulas. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, it's it's pretty. It's inferred that Mary's going to be the next host yeah. because um, it's revealed that Tack kind of uses them all up. Like that, they that's why they have boils and they like start going insane. Is that humans can't really take the possession for that long? So that's why all the townspeople are dead. Is that it? Just keeps hopping. It's this you know, force that just hops from person to person, uh, and just murders the entire town just because they burn so hot. Um, but Pi again, a ghost, uh, helps her mistake, her, her escape. And, um, that forces, uh, tack to have no body. So tack is (laughs) now has to go into a bird. Um, so yeah, we kind of get more about the Vietnam, uh, the Vietnam flashback because he, uh, Johnny, at a later scene when they're in the pit looking for ways to like k- kill Tack, um, Johnny kind of confesses to everyone about he saw a guy in Vietnam when he was there forty years ago who was actually possessed by Tack, and they blew up the bathroom of a bar. And one of his claims to fame is that like one of one of the uh, stories that he uh, had that was like he got cred for was that during the war, apparently he saved a bunch of people by alerting that there was a bomb there. Um, And so everyone got out of the uh, bar and he saved some people just by doing the heroic thing. He reveals that that's a fiction that he essentially made up. And he feels guilty about it because he didn't warn any of the patrons. He just ran out like as he feels as a coward. Um, 
and that's where they kind of have their final they kind of all you know bear their soul well and, and they say and god made big, that happen so that you would be they, leave yeah. that tack is real when this now is happening I'm, so it's I'm like everything it. happens for a reason and this is the culmination Right, I'm saving it for it because mm -hmm. most of the conversations done in passing in this film are usually about God or people's relationship to God, right? Or gods, because you know some people consider Tack, uh, you know, some kind of godlike force, right? Um, now their plan kind of culminates with them deciding to take some explosives to the cave where they know that Tack was found in the pit, uh, or at the in the mine, I guess, uh. Now, when they're about to enter, the buzzard arrives and kills yet another. Protac kills uh, yeah. David's dad. Who David's was he dad. in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? He's from something. Man, it's Crucial been so long since I've okay. seen that that I couldn't. Um, even but say. Crow kills. Crotac kills dad. Mm -hmm. Crotac kills dad. Yep. And uh, Johnny decides that he's going to go in the mine alone. Uh, and everyone kind of fights him on it, but like in a Hollywood typical thing. What if I rode Decides. a motorcycle? And what if at the end I sacrificed I myself and I was the hero? <laughs> yeah. And they all kind of run with it because you know yeah. he's a guilty guy. He's got he's he's got the know-how. And why should we have to? Uh, you know, we're all we're like most of us are children at this yeah. point. Uh, so but I also like the tack at one point when he's fighting Stephen King slash Johnny mm -hmm. goes, come on, big, brave American writer. Is that a trope that writers are super brave and, and yeah. big and like intimidating? Apparently so. <laughs> uh, so anyway, Johnny goes into the mine and he falls in a hole because like tack scares him. Uh, and that's like and that the base of the hole is like. I guess like the bunch anus. of moms, which is <laughs> it's good. Like, it's it's like or the eye. I don't know. It's like the place. It looks like an anus to me. But it, the point is that it's like where's I think we're supposed to believe is like ground zero for tax. It's the uh, part in annihilation. It's the bottom of the lighthouse. It's, it's the, the lighthouse. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, and so he. He just he blows it up. He ignites the explosives using like a shotgun, uh, like shelling. He like takes the gunpowder out and lights it up, sacrificing himself. The whole thing literally, literally makes a joke about critics before he blows himself it's up. It's the best. Everyone's it's a the critic. Best. Boom. Uh, and <laughs> and then all the survivors drive away in Steve's truck, and they got the hog in the back. Everything's great. Uh, and then I guess there's this kind of like ending because they have to do an ending, it's especially Stephen King or just like in general horror movies have to kind of do like, a hmm, maybe something else is happening. Uh, yeah. And maybe part two, you know, like along the route, they uh, drive from town. They pass by an RV vehicle uh, that was David's family and Peter's sister's car mm -hmm. as well. Like they just are going through all of the they're driving back out of you know hell so to speak and um they get a they they stop the truck and get out and uh get a case from the car in the back seat uh mary finds a photo album that belonged to david with a picture of johnny and pie together uh and it's signed by johnny which is impossible so the, it's one last kind of like oh yeah so there's a God and they sometimes do tricks. And it says, well, but nice tricks to make you feel good after to you've been you through a hard good. time. It's, he yeah. signed it. God is love. 
And yeah, I just uh, want to set the scene. Great synopsis, dude. It wraps up with the lines. What do you think, David? Is he love? And they ask him that because David obviously speaks directly mm-hmm. to God. This has been proven. What do you think, David? Is he love? Yeah, I guess so. I guess yeah. God is sort of everything. That's what makes him God. Him, him, that's, motherfuckers. No, that's, that's not yeah. the operative word, but um, that right. is indeed how it ends. And well synopsized. Thank you. Thank you. I wanted to cover all our bases because I think this is some good conversation in this, actually. I found this. I actually didn't hate it. Uh, it's pretty run of the mill. I'll definitely say that. But it's, um, I don't know. We're, we're going to get into it. Um, I think that there's a lot of cool stuff to talk about. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's move to our next section. Uh, the one that we call Skeleton Crew. He uses an audio clip from The Mist as the bumper. Just for the record, The Mist is a short story mm-hmm. from the collection called You Guessed It, A Idiot Skeleton Crew. Something in the mist. Shut the doors. Shut the doors. So we're right again. Um, yeah. That's why we're the kings of king. I'm sorry. <laughs> I love you. Uh, but this is the segment where we talk about behind the scenes stuff, uh, the people behind the project, involved with the project. Uh, I don't have much to say on the filmmaking side, but I. this is also where we talk about how it relates to the book, if at all. And I do want to, how about, can you dispense what little there may be that's interesting about the making of this run-of-the-mill uh, ensemble-driven TV yeah, horror not, film? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And then uh, I'll do book the shit? Only, the, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, but all, my, all the things that I thought were interesting, other than the fact that this kind of um, is a part of a collaboration, so to speak, between the, the director, Mick Garris, who has been in as an actor and also directed several like t- made for TV, Stephen King movies. At Six, this point. I think total. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, including the stand and the shining, um, you know, uh, there's a few others in frequent there that we to cover frequent collaborator. And it's just, I wanted to point out that name, Mick Garris, just because by listening to this podcast, you're going to hear it a few times. Uh, and you know, like we can assess like what they're, what Mick's old, uh, you know, approach to these things are, but that's for a different section. Uh, another thing I want to notice is that this is a teleplay by Stephen King. So this is as close as Stephen King ever gets, um, to his vision, so to speak, in the adaptation format, because Other he's than adapting. Overdrive. Yeah. Well, but that doesn't count because they were all high, Mitigating uh, factors. But, but yeah, like I, this is yeah. literally him adapting himself. And it feels um, like Mick Garris is, and he has a few of these, I would call him a Stephen King enabler. And I don't necessarily mm-hmm. even mean it negatively. I just mean they bridge, they are a director who is willing to bow to Stephen King, let Stephen King be Stephen King and play around in the medium, but assist Stephen King in bringing it to life in a different medium. But they're not like Kubrick where they're going to call you in the middle of the night and say, I fucking changed your book, nerd. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I feel yeah. like Mick Garris I think honors Stephen King and Stephen King probably collaborates frequently with them because they let Stephen King actually feel like they're part of the filmmaking process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that there's probably an element of truth to that, just because that's how it looks. 
it may be specious in that I don't understand their uh, collaboration specifically, but it does seem like they do agree on a lot of stuff, as we know from previous episodes. And if you followed Stephen King at all, uh, The Stand and The Shining, two of which Mick Garris directed, are like his favorites. Like he thinks that they're most true to the book. Mm -hmm. And I think that that probably speaks to what you just said, Michael. Yeah. Um, Stephen King was inspired to write this story and it's, a uh, because he went, he did a cross country drive in 1991 and he visited a small desert town of Ruth, Nevada near the uh, U.S. High highway 50. And his first thought was that the town's inhabitants were all dead. I wonder, I wonder why Stephen or zombies <laughs> or inhabited yeah, by evil although demons. Although I do, I have had that thought with some of oh, those towns. I've driven by. There. There's a town called Borax, California, that I have mm -hmm. driven by, where there's there's like some suburban housing in a desert with a big, tall chain link fence around it, and I saw a child's tricycle leaning against the fence. You know, and you have that moment of like. Right. Who fucking grows up here? Just you know move anywhere else. Why are you here? You know who that here? kid is, though. You know who that kid is, David. <laughs> the, God's no, chosen one. The name one? of the kid. The name of the kid is the Borax kid. The Borax. <laughs> oh, I see. The Borax <laughs> Bandit. Wrong show, motherfucker. Yeah, that's um, right. Desperation is a companion book uh, that was released under the name Stephen King, uh, and then he released another book called The Regulators under Richard Bachman and their sort of companion pieces. They fascinated me as a child because my dad had both the hardcovers growing up and the hardcovers have, so like desperation had like fencing with holes in the wood and through the holes was the cover of regulators. Does that make sense? And then the regulators mm -hmm. cover had elements borrowed from the desperation cover. Oh, uh, cool. And they're related in the sense that a bunch of the characters that make up the ensemble are the same in both. Like their character traits are the same, but they're arrayed in a different order. Like if you took the same chess pieces and just lined them up differently and told a different story, and in both cases, the villain is Tack. Um, however, not even the rules of what Tack does are necessarily... So for example, in Desperation, Tack possesses people, but it wears out their bodies. In uh, The Regulators, Tack can only function in this one autistic boy's mind, but has the power to warp reality itself. So mm -hmm. I didn't know if they were going to pull any of the regulators stuff, but I hoped they would. I figured they wouldn't because of the effects needs. But I had forgotten that Desperation is pretty VFX light. Like it's just stuff happening in the real world yeah. until you see Tack or whatever, the glowy, whatever it is. But mm -hmm. um, the regulators is not. It's like, uh, you remember the Simpsons where the ads come to life and the Marlboro man starts oh, yeah. snuffing people out it's like that because the kid is obsessed with garish americana and they all mm. come to life and start slaughtering Which everyone is in the kind of cool yeah yeah it's really cool and the tack uh lore is super cool uh and tack for example is called the outsider in the pantheon of stephen king cosmology because specifically because tack does not uh so there's like a whole pantheon in the dark tower and like I think it, the like Pennywise slash it is one of these creatures from this outer, the same outer realm that they're trying to hold off in Dark Tower. But uh, the uh, tack is like unrelated to all those. Tack, uh, the regulators in Desperation form a pocket universe uh, that is separate. And there's references in the Dark Tower series to like the outsider and tack as like a loose cannon. So I think that's very telling 
for desperation only in so far as this fails the Joker test. Like you can't like what is if you think it through from Tack's point of view, so to speak, it's pretty tough to tell why Tack is doing whatever Tack is doing at any given time. Tack just does shit. Right. Uh, right. And whether you accept that or not, I think we'll dig into the ways that compromises maybe the tension that you're trying to build in some cases, but it also heightens the feeling of chaos and you don't know what the fuck is going on in this. Uh, and it's very true to the book, but I think the book delved more into like the lore of of what's going on with Tack. And uh, yeah, that's all I got because everything I want to start tugging at actually gets into the story. But I do yep. love Ron Perlman. Ron Perlman rips. He does, he does a pretty good job. And I bet um, he had a lot of fun doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I was sad to see that he was he's he's actually briefly in the film. He's dominant for the first half hour. Yeah, you know, he's like the he's the thread in which we follow, and he's every tack. scene is his, every scene is a, his scene, and he the two him just if you were to be pulled over. I mean, cops are already terrifying, but if it was Ron Perlman and you were alone in the in the desert, that is probably top five most terrifying mm -hmm. thing nightmares that I've had. You know, just Ron Perlman looking right through your window, right into your soul. Yeah. Yeah. He's uh, But he did a really good job, I thought, in this movie um, because it's kind of a wild character. You know, it's it's big. Sorry, I'm looking up shit like, is Tack Pennywise? Is Tack the Crimson King? Because <laughs> right, I forget right. all the details. <clears throat> I used to know it all. Well, that that's a good uh, signal for, because we're Let's talk about this movie. to sure. talk about what, uh, what we want to talk Let's about. Let's talk about What we want to talk about is it. Bill, if you'll come with me, you'll float too. You'll float too. You'll float too. Yeah, dude. Yeah, dude. And the first thing I wanted to talk about is uh, what I, you know, we'll go last in, first out. So on the same thread, mm -hmm. Ron Perlman's use in this, I think, first off, the reason I think Stephen King didn't have a lot of oversight on the teleplay is the dialogue line to line feels so King in that he takes big, goofy swings. Sometimes yeah. it gives you a very unique, poignant, or not even poignant, but a powerful image or just evocative imagist line like, get up, you worthless piece of crap. You've been redefined. Mm -hmm. You're in the house of the wolf and the scorpion. Like, to me, that's cool. And you have a right to an attorney. I'm going to kill you if you do not want an attorney. I'm like, that's cool. That's very effective. But then I'm mm -hmm. um, like, eat me, said Alice to the cake, said the cake to Alice. Or, uh, you know, yeah, there's that, equally there's lines where you cringe because you're like, yeah. no one has said that since 1951 over like an egg cream. And he's right. Yeah. And he's repurposing, repurposing it for a 2000s thing. Yeah. And it already it feels dated in that time zone already. It feels out of place, you know, in hindsight, because it's like. No, you're just out of time in two ways, you know, right, like, right. It's very strange. And I do think I would levy the critique at this film that is levied at that was levied a lot at our old drafts of the movie we're working on, which is that because the beginning is just Ron Perlman gathering people up and we never fully understand Tack. It's a mystery. Tack is, you know, unknowable, their motivations. Uh, right. It feels like. There's no 
direct thread pulling us forward for a long time. For example, the first scene sequence reminded me a lot of Nocturnal Animals. And I know you've seen mm. that. And yeah. it's, uh, you know, it's made for TV, so it's a little less intense. But Nocturnal Animals has another th- sequence where in the desert on the side of the road, some people are slowly coerced into going with someone bad. And it feels terrible, but it also doesn't feel like you're lost with no plot because they have a framing device about a relationship that fell apart. And all that matters is that the people involved have well, like have stakes and a forward momentum. And it did really bother me how this felt like, uh, and this could just be because he's a novelist, but it felt like 45 minutes of Ron Perlman just doing stuff. Then you finally figured out, oh, it's about God. (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. It's about God. And then for better or worse, it stays on track and it's about God versus tack. And you understand the arc is going to be, is there a God or isn't there? How can there be horrible things in the world? Oh, there is a God. I believe in faith. The end. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's a pretty trite story to tell, but at least it like, it has a shape. It does the thing. I did think it was weird how Ron Perlman's sequence, I'll shut up about it, but it felt like formless. That's all. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, he has, King has this tendency, I've noticed, with a lot of, like, I'm thinking thinner, I'm thinking of a lot of the made-for-TV stories uh, that are less epic, so I would discount, you know, or I, I wouldn't count, like, the, you know, Dr. Sleep, you know, Shining Universe. I know it's all one universe. Or, like, Dark Tower, which you can tell that there's so much attention to the world building the ones that feel more like an x you know an x files episode that are kind of like here's just a short story um i have the 10 i'm noticing this tendency that he has this real strong a b kind of form where it's like let's set them up and then let's knock them down Mm -hmm. like he really likes to put all of the heavy lifting in act one for the like uh, for the idea of the building up of the villain to show how typically a vi- how powerful this villain is. And then it has the tendency to kind of make it underwhelming in act two and three. And, you know, like uh, and just in terms of like uh, when the conflict is most important to the protagonists, uh, they kind of just do one thing that gets them done that, uh, takes care of everything like they just explode it and it worked yeah. or like even in it you know just like and then we went in the sewer and then what and then we like we killed the spider with our brains um and the reason that i mentioned that is that is atypical in terms of like what we'd call a typical hero tale in western culture you know obviously there's so many different ways to skin a cat but Those typically allow what those typically the standard in which they employ is that they try to set up small little um, thresholds for the protagonist to go through that every time that they try to assert themselves, become closer to their goal, the conflict or the or the antagonist or the villain snaps them back and it just feels insurmountable all the way until act three. And then they finally persevere. Now, that's not what Stephen King does with these stories. It doesn't seem like. In fact, 
Tack and everybody else feel like they're not even in the same movie until the very final culmination. And that's why we get that because I, I don't know. My personal theory is that there's something about Stephen King loves shapelessness. He thinks that something nebulous and unknown is terrifying on its and own. And he's not totally wrong about that. Obviously, he's that's not. true. <laughs> and I think that, uh, and I don't mean like shapelessness in terms of form, but I think that, you know, form is reflecting content in this. So he's like, I want them to be in the dark, my protagonist to be in the dark about tack the whole time. Until they're just like, fuck it, let's just try to blow it up. Oh, it worked. Great. Um, right. And that's that's hard for people to get into. Um, I think as an audience member, the tendency is we dislike those stories a little bit more because we don't have the feeling of that perseverance. We don't have that feeling of like falling down and getting back up again and falling down and getting back up again and then falling down and finally winning, you know, kind of thing. Uh, it's, My favorite it's this, shit, like yeah. The Wire or... Uh, I don't know why I would say Festin's one of my favorite, but it strikes me as one of these that's built this way. But so my favorite good. shit is where everyone just has personal self-interest balanced against the other self-interests, you know, present in the plot. And those can lead to like, I'm willing to hurt you to get my thing. Uh, right. Or in a more accessible version of that would be like Michael Keaton as Vulture and Spider-Man. Like I actually do think that's one shade more interesting where you are like the villain kind of has a point. Of course, that's more interesting and more true to life than uh tack. Like, Oh, who knows? He's just an asshole. <laughs> like tack is just a prick. Right. Like who knows yeah, he's what just he's a thinking prick. of. He's because I think Stephen King, at least in the uh, movie version, he scribes in like in the forms of gods, things that are just doing things. They're force. They're not like they are that manifest to get you yeah. personally. They're out to get the world because they're, you know, they're, they're chaos or they're, you know. And this coming so late in his career, I don't think it's immune to the overabundance of Easter eggs and self-references and like, like, yeah, man, you referenced The Shining rough. and it, this has a red rum in it straight up. Red rum on the yeah. wall. Red rum red dog. Red dog. Yeah. Uh, for in the God sequence murder. where they fight a murder dog, which is also a ripoff of Cujo. So like, it's just this layer cake of referential Stephen King shit. And, uh, we're not done with the shining stuff because they do it twice. One time they flush a urinal and blood comes out. One time they play a slot machine and blood oh, comes they out. Play it, yeah. <laughs> blood. Uh, while we're there, just because I was also, I I'm starting to love, there's like a mini section in it where I'm, just trying to dispense all the tropes that uh, come up time right, and time of again. Course. And it's just so crazy how much there are. We have an author as a main character or key supporting character. And not just an uh, author, but Stephen King. It's like Stephen clearly King. Stephen yeah. King. Yeah. Uh, other visible pronunciations of like, uh, it's, it's like, it's always Americana, right? And like writing uh, motorcycles is a part of that. That's a subculture of Americana. Uh, and you, in that road culture, um, a writer is typically thought of as an outsider them, themselves. They're usually seen outside the law, kind of a vigilante. Uh, there's this feeling of rural versus urban that comes up time and time again. This one is a little bit more subtle because it all kind of takes place in one town. So you don't actually see characters from both sides of those, you know, that fence uh, in conflict. But 
you notice through tack ron pearl and mace mainly he says a few times like you yuppie pieces of shit like this is just Yuppies like killed you, princess die you know that yeah, wasn't she beautiful yeah. big city <laughs> you know whatever yeah. and it, so it's just like um that's something that king tries to take advantage of it's like a bullying that occurs in americana just pointing that out a familiar uh cop in this case uh with this kind of Usually he tries to take something that's familiar, like a clown, let's say a birthday clown, and tries to make it um, terrifying. Seems so uh, cliche at this point, but he helped make it that way. Uh, he's also fascinated with the representation of the desert, as we see in The Stand, and we see in Dark Tower. He likes the arid kind of emptiness of the desert and a lot of skeletons it. it's spooky it's, it's spooky animal imagery once again comes up a lot of his stephen king's villains are described as something else usually as like spiders or whatnot in this one we get a lot of wolves scorpions spiders and snakes and as, and of course a mountain lion who's like the king of the or not mountain lion but yeah i guess wildcat yeah, wildcat yeah uh shapeshifters as well we got shapeshifters in this one uh, he loves that. So it's just uh, we're, you know, uh, oh, we have a boy uh, in this case, a child with direct communion to a power. Or in this case, it's God. As Tack calls him, just a little prey boy in a baseball shirt. Yeah, <laughs> a little prey boy. A, so it's much like Abra in The Shining and Doctor Sleep, uh, mm-hmm. communion with other psychics, sure. or Duddits with Mister Gray. Uh, you mentioned the dogs. Um, I don't know if it's a phase or it's just less common, but there's still a noticeable trope that I'm starting to see as I get more familiar with more King stories that um, like believers that question the amorality of God or specifically asking like what kind of God does that and Mm -hmm. then pointing to that worthiness of God. That is something that's come up more than once. And uh, I think that's interesting you know, just because um, Stephen King, a man of faith, is uh, always trying to make his characters more or less uh, faithful, you know, look at Green Mile, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so those are just things I noticed, you know, more other tropes. Good shit, man. Yeah. Good shit. Um, I, I'm what else? just because I'm a big dialogue boy. Like I just noticed all the lines that I either liked or thought were notably like mm-hmm. jump the shark. But um, mm-hmm. you want to know how cruel God is, how fantastically cruel. Uh, and that's such an object lesson for writers out there fantastically like this is why they talk about it being a trope to kill adverbs from your script mm, because right. that's the word that tipped it that line was okay and naturalistic until you had <laughs> you want to know how cruel god is kid how fantastically cruel dude this guy just learned that like the devil is real i don't know it's just a little eloquent for that moment um how fantastically cruel sometimes he makes us live oh and yeah i think you're dead on i think King has a recurring theme that is, look, there's only so many things that are true and it's not a lot like that we know to be true that stand the test of Mm. time. And one is this observation about it's hard to have faith sometimes because so much, there's so much suffering in the world and it feels like by any conception, a creature with consciousness and control, the balance would be a little better, but that's what makes it faith. Right. And he that's, loves that. He loves that. But that's what makes it faith. And like, and they win anyway. 
All right. That's kind of what actually <laughs> makes this good to me is that I know we keep using words like it's trite or it's very like pulpy, like in terms of like it's how it's well trod ground. Execu- I'm not saying well, that with ground. judgment. That's fair. That is fair. Absolutely. But the deconstruction of faith that Stephen King does in this and other works, but like this is a big one because they his characters confront it and talk oh, about it. The casually. kid makes loaves and fishes miracle happen. Like he feeds mm. them with less food than he should be able to. Yeah. It is as religious as certainly it's the most religious, explicitly Christian one that we've covered on this show so far. And I right. think it might be among the most Christian the like yeah. things Stephen King has been a part of. Right. Um, I find that actually pretty interesting because it gets to the heart of, so there's a few things that I started to notice. So I actually have like this weird theory, right? Mm-hmm. You uh, usually do. I don't think Stephen King knows that he's doing it because I know how clever he is. He's a, he's actually pretty clever. He's very smart with like omitting stuff, especially like he, he, he finds a way to really focus your lens as the viewer into the thing that he wants to talk about very, very well. And that takes some element of cleverness and there's stuff that is being done by the adaptation. I don't know if the books did it to such an extent, but it's definitely in the DNA of the story. And I want to kind of paint this picture where let's start here. David, throughout the whole movie, wears a Cleveland Indian shirt that is splattered with blood. There's constant reminders that the enslavement of people marked in the town with this kind of curse are doing the bidding of a god, essentially. Uh, they do- are all dead, but also yeah, either ra- because he killed them, but they enslave the possession of someone. Racism right? against Chinese Americans and the whole uh, like exactly the uh, enslavement for the purposes of building the transcontinental railroads is a big part mm-hmm. of all the flashbacks mm-hmm. and all the like and, info dump. and yeah, exactly. It's just especially like, it's a road movie, and we're talking yeah. about like Chinese working. It's just like The Shining. You're like it's Center. an evil place because a bunch of horrible yeah. shit happened. The Vietnam imagery evokes a kind of like colonist grief and guilt uh, that if when we look to the actual story of what he tells, Tom Skerritt's telling a story of he is feels guilty because he felt like he didn't save them. Yeah. That is the Vietnam conflict from the perspective of, of an American of soldier, if I've yeah. ever heard one. There's a lot of white guilt in this uh, imagery in this movie. Uh, there's old timey like racists uh, f- like uh, newsreels and such that uh, use ethnic slurs of that time. I think it's meant to categorize the horror into specifically a previous atrocity because that's something King does a lot. A lot of horror movies do that, you know, like Buffy or whatnot. It's Candy like, man. oh, the source of the power, the pr- this atrocity caused this thing to be evil begets now, evil not, pain now, begets pain i get the sense that tack is probably more like you know like uh like it where it's like he ex- it existed a lot through time right it maybe it doesn't even feel time the same way we do but there's this feeling of it was unearthed by this action by this previous atrocity it may not be the well, source actually of that's interesting because if you recall it's explicitly mm-hmm. unearthed by two uh, railroad workers who 
nobly sacrifice themselves and blow themselves up mm-hmm. in order to keep Tack from escaping, despite the fact that they've been treated with nothing but contempt by their like right. foreman or whatever. So Tack is like, I'm, you know, it's like Fern Gully. Tack is sealed by an act of intersectional, like noble sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And then Tack is brought to the surface again by like, they call it the China pit and the, mm-hmm. they're like callous about you know, strip mining the earth or whatever. It's uh, yeah. Tack always existed and is a discrete objective entity that exists, but still there's something in there about like, you kind of brought it on yourselves by doing yeah. evil shit in Vietnam in, and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> Specifically, uh, even though they sacrifice themselves, the entire ex- uh, enterprise is done in the name of wealth and treasure for a ruling class. Uh, whatever may result from the dig, mm-hmm. uh, which they don't know, but they're just has slaves and they're using them, I guess, because it, it doesn't really go into why they're digging in general. Uh, but once tax unearthed, a riot is occur, uh, like a riot occurs, like he he inspires them all to like take down the establishment. That's very and king. The masters also. are killed. Yeah alongside the workers everyone dies because tack will just kill you all. tack makes you angry but to be around his methodology to do and this is where i think stephen king's centrism is showing which is fine you know that's why he's very popular in america's you know circa the last 50 years it makes sense because it's telling us exactly what we're if if you tech says i do not die and I repay. That is something uh, it literally says at one point. And I think it's interesting that in a, you have this attenuation done by uh, King to focus on like the enslavement of peoples and the idea of like, well, you have to kind of, you know, discard the lash. You have to address the, you know, white colonialists in this case, or, you know, your, your masters, uh, in the in in the, in the case reckon of with the, your own sins, yeah. And you have to uh, you have to you know abolish the very thought that they're your masters. That results in the killing of everybody. I don't think Stephen King's trying to say that it's like to riot causes this. I, I he's usurping that. No, and saying definitely like, not. Tack, no, tack no, is no. just like he's a just force. saying tack is evil. It's like the One Ring. It corrupts you to be around tack. Because it's so yeah, evil. for sure. Uh, but it's just very interesting to me. It is. Oh, the other thing but I noticed is that tax <laughs> tax tax language is vaguely Egyptian. Did you notice this? Yes. Yeah, it's. I'm not a linguist, but there's a few syllables I recognize from other like Rosicrucian films, like mm-hmm. Amon and Tet. Uh, and this is his. It's some foreign language or it's some like uh, ancient language that we're unaware of. But, uh, you know, they, we have to hear it. And the way the way they went seemed pretty clearly Egyptian. Another yeah. symbol of, you know, enslavement. Also, so, it's dumb that he uses a motorcycle helmet to keep him from being possessed. And that's all you need to not be possessed by the devil. That is so dumb. It could because he, <laughs> he puts down the flap and that means that it can't like get into go his under. mouth. Yeah, it can't get into, you know, the Even possession hole, away. the hole you got to go in to possess. You know, someone. you're a smoke monster. Yeah. And you're like, oh, can't get in through the chin, though. I, I can't. Up. <laughs> uh, it's like heredi- it's, it's, it's like sealed up in here. Yeah, I don't know what that, that was. So I think it's interesting that you talk about how he's just the embodiment of it's funny because it's horror. 
and it's about subversion mm-hmm. of Americana, but in other ways, he has become wholesome Americana. But it's not that weird because towards the end of your career, you often become a boiled down iconic version of the things you used to tackle with nuance or like a parody of yourself. And I know I'm not saying he's full-fledged parody of himself, but it's just very interesting to me that these this movie has the lines, we were put on earth to love God and serve God. And like, I don't think that's... Ironic. I think it's kind of like Christian propaganda <laughs> movie, yeah, or like and, it, or you know, it's the word of God if you think Christianity is accurate. But yeah, uh, it's pretty straightforward. Like God saves the day; they're all there. Be- it's like almost felt like Left Behind, like they were there mm-hmm. on the explicit order. We're on a mission from Gad to kill Tack, and that's their whole purpose for being. You know, good for them. Yeah, such is the yeah. will of the Lord. Yeah, so that and that's like kind of it's interesting to me that the theme like the thematic dramatic question of this movie is like trying to navigate the space of two questions. Well, question 1, God's plan. If we follow that, that that's what's going to That's good. like save us, right? And if something bad happens to you, just remember mm-hmm. later God will like there was a reason. There's always a reason. Right. That's so the other faith. pillar. Yeah. And then, and then the other question is what kind of God, which is said by several characters at one point, what kind of God would do this? Fuck this God. That's literally a line in this. Um, and that represents doubt. So we have faith versus doubt, right? And it's na- the movie's called Desperation. Why do you think, why, why do we think it's called Desperation? Why do you think he did that? I mean, I have my thoughts, Is but you're just, setting yourself up for the next beat of your essay. Uh, go, girl. The deconstruction of faith uh, felt by a lot of people who have beliefs. Uh, I've noticed that's an, sometimes it's an act of desperation. No atheists it's, in foxholes? Yeah. that it's, it's how usually atheists are painted. Now, that's a very atheist-centric Do you think view. he's slyly saying... That all these Christians that he's depicting as the heroes are desperate. No, I think it's definitely more positive than that. I think that in his heart of hearts, just based off reading it, it feels like Stephen King is just trying to tell everyone that like, it's really good to God is good. Love is good good, though. Right. You know, and that's great. But it's, um, you know, you do always set up a system when you tell stories like this within, you know, within that system where you're trying to say, okay, faith will be rewarded and non-faith or the absence of faith. And I don't mean someone who's like, oh, I hate faith. I just mean stories that are told that they just don't have faith. I don't know. People like migrant Chinese slaves or, uh, you know, Native Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, these people didn't have the same faith. What does that mean? So they, that's why their thing, that's why their revolutions failed. I, I I think that there's something in that because it's all about normalcy. It's all about saying like, okay, this is Americana and this is the righteous way. Everything else. Right. Is, and this is that. And, and it that's streamlines that's like everything. Hollywood. Well, that's if God, if it's Clash of the Titans and everyone's just doing what God told them to do, like chess pieces. Mm-hmm. And it's really just God versus tack. That's what bothers me about the stakes of the thing structurally is like the problem with the whole movie is summed up in this one interchange. So what does this tack want? It doesn't matter. It doesn't. No. All that matters is what God wants. Okay, well then just show 
the last scene of the movie and let's get out of here. Like if there's, if right. it's all, if God is omnipotent, it's the Superman problem. I just find it inherently uninteresting when the answer is, oh, you just had to have faith because it was really just a roller coaster on a track and it was always going to safely end with God winning. Like, relax, man. Right. Just let it happen. Right. I like, right. uh, I like the nihilist universe where you're like, you know, if a character gets killed in this universe, then they're gone and we miss them. And that's, mm. it just feels more urgent and engaging to me to exist yeah. in that level of stakes. I agree. Uh, it's interesting to me that this is, I mean, this is, we're getting out of the territory of King and more into the, you know, like cultural From King shared, to God. cultural shared vision of faith in America for the last hundreds of years, right? Yeah, the CZ, uh, which CSB I don't even feel F. remotely qualified to talk mm-hmm. about the nuances of, but I just am noticing through the story of this, like we see time and time again in these King stories that the pioneer spirit of humans, another tenant of Americana uh, imagery like a gun or imagery or something like the idea of camaraderie between friends, believing in a greater power or God, Protestant like work ethic. These are things that King rewards his heroes for. He Even says, as like, simple you, as love is good. That's in this movie. Love is yeah, good. <laughs> and I'm not saying that that's bad. I'm not saying no. that Americana is bad. I mean, I think it's very flawed. <laughs> Sometimes America, Americana is saying, like, be good to one another. I'm not disagreeing with the whole thing. I just wanted to point out that King uses that the quote unquote Americana's good works or American good works, specifically like central or commonplace place like belief structures that's always the winner and that is true of hollywood uh but it's interesting to me because it's always set up with like he's that but he's also serving his client like who is his audience most of america so who does he say is good the most average type of american like right a christian middle class american from the suburbs they're gonna win and it becomes it becomes and we kind of touched upon this on the it episode I wouldn't call it like hypocritical by King, but he does this thing with outsiders a lot. And sometimes the outsider, something different can be the source of like great healing, like Jesus Christ, or it can be the source of great torment, like tech. He uses this outsider imagery as both someone who is going to save us and someone who is going to doom us all the time. And so it's, it begs the question about the Christ antichrist thing, you know, just the idea of like, do we know if this, the thing I'm looking at is a devil? And that's why his torment, Stephen King's tales about Americana and, you know, sometimes mostly about the suburbs, uh, even though he doesn't like to put his settings there, it is the suburbs because that was like the majority of America when he was well, and this is up. a white middle class nuclear family as the primary. Yeah, Anglo-Saxon majority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. driving yeah. through. They're not in the suburbs, but they're visiting from. You guessed it. Yeah, and it's like, um, I think that there's this interesting neoclassical, I guess would be the word, uh, kind of manipulation that he's doing because usually that means it's like if you're ugly or repugnant in like neoclassical literature. That means you are an abomination. It's just, it's, it's one-to-one King does this. Uh, but at the same time, as long as it's not grotesque or different enough, but more familiar and common, uh, it's your salvation. Um, so it's that, I just think that that's very fascinating to me that the outsider trope 
in King becomes something where it's like, um, it's both, it's both things. It's what's different though. The, the through line though, the what's different is like noticeable, I guess. I don't know what I want to say with this theory other than like, it's just the thing that he's really harping upon is this weird xenophobic kind of, uh, sensitivity. I find that interesting. Wait, he's, I've lost the thread. He's focused on, you're saying how he's always focused on how people hate the outsider, and that's a theme that he wants to bring up. I think that <clears throat> I am just pointing out. Or are you out saying that the fact that the Losers Club are outsiders and that's cool, but if you're too much of an outsider, it's not cool? That's closer. It's okay. more that he's super hy- hypersensitive to the concept the of the The band outsider. of outsiderness that you should belong to. Yeah. You should exactly. be you should be River Phoenix from Stand by Me, but you shouldn't be, for example, a you know Christian lady from The Mist who takes it too far. Like it's you can interesting. Take it too far. Yeah. He is willing to show the bad side of Christianity. I mean, he has very you know Absolutely. Carrie as well. Absolutely, but the idea I think, or the trump card, is really what's the most familiar? Like what's the centrist, like normal thing to do? Because even in The Mist, the crazy church lady uh right but tom jane is probably christian he's just not a cultist yeah he's just not crazy about it but he probably is christian if you yeah absolutely i would say that like at least he feels evolved from that system i don't Mm. know about the nuances because like i'm not saying that and i'm not saying that king is the worst offender in this regard because this is a trope that happens in almost every Hollywood movie ever because of just how white everything is. But um, I just think it's very interesting that this is, this is seen as like ad hoc for King, this sensitivity and awareness of the duality of outsiders. It's almost like everything that he writes stems from this concept of the interplay of like, who's the bad outsider and who's the good outsider. Um, and that creates a very vicious system of morality, in my opinion. Or I just think that the hypersensitivity to it is not the greatest place to start a story uh, if you're trying to tell moral tales, which I don't think that, you know, King is necessarily saying that he is. Um, but he does talk about these things. Now uh, with Desperation, I think he was stories. more interested in the gimmick of using the same cast twice in two different books. And he was just trying to do cool shit with Tack. I think that's probably vibe right. I get. I just think it's interesting. It's why is it about God then? Yeah, that's what I mean. It almost feels like a cop out where he's like, Americans will be fine with this if the ending is. But it is interesting that it's basically like the Americanized Christian God fighting a vaguely like Egyptian God. <laughs> that's you and, know, and we're rooting and not for even fighting. We're rooting for bearded Santa Claus God. Like Tech is actually more familiar because he, at least the way he fights is like, he sends out his minions, you know, at, at one point he acts like Dracula. He like quotes well, Dracula. He says, ah, the des- my children of the desert, can you hear them? Which of course is can like, ah, oh, my children of the night, can you hear the sweet, such beautiful like music? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, quoting from the original Dracula and all that. Like, so he is a, he's like a. He's a villain that you can kind of understand, right? Because he's like here. No, but you don't understand. has acts and deeds. Because they never set up like, if he can gather five hosts, then he can come into our world. Or he wants the throne of Gilgamesh because then he'll control. Like, I just didn't like that Tack was unknowable to a degree that I didn't understand what the 
adversaries' goals, goals were. were. Yeah. yeah. I yeah no I'm saying something like even a velociraptor in Jurassic Park at least you know it wants to eat flesh. It's hungry. Yeah, <laughs> uh, absolutely. Yeah, and that's a good distinction to make. And on top of that, I was just going to add the idea that, and then on the flip side, you have God, who is also unknowable, but in a way that he doesn't even fight on our plane. He his his acts are done because of like serendipity of events that unfold, and then retroactively we go that was God. Mm-hmm. You know, and that that justifies and, you know, reaffirms my faith. Um, and that's like very strange is that that are the if our two competing claims are God or tack, one is like a grunt on the lines in on Earth going, you know, really going to task on murdering people for some reason. And God is just like, I'm going to figure it out. And, it's, it's and I'm just a mysterious force and I work and, through children and shit. Yeah, and that's fine. I mean, like yeah. Tom Skerritt is, you know, acting as God intended, I guess, and kills himself, but like saves the day. And that was his specific. That's why it's an explosion because like, Vietnam, his flashback, all yeah. that. It all fits. It's all a story that like has the threads. It's almost Shyamalan-esque. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's Stephen King. He knows how to do that stuff. Mary, He's your really past good at thing it. is manifest in the new thing. Yeah, exactly. Swing away. But it's like swing away. But when you un, I don't know, just when you peel it back, you realize at the heart of it really is this thing where it's like I get I as the writer as God hmm. get to choose who the hero is. Right, a lot of the book is just a bumper sticker that says God is great, love is God, God is love, love is good. Yeah, (laughs) and we're a bunch of, you know, heretics. Curmudgeons. So we, uh, that doesn't work really on us. Spoilers, if it wasn't clear already. Both Mike and I share. Oh, I'll totally change my tune if the furry movie gets financed, then I'll be like. Oh, then it's God. All glory to God. Thank you for this, my Lord. I think that, I don't think you're understanding how God works, but that's fine. You do you, man. You know. Okay. Sunday Sunday Catholics are people too. Um, Okay. Okay. Speaking Uh, of the minor variations between our samey opinions. Mm, Should we get to the rankings and see if they're in tune? Yeah. Actually, I want to ask you a question before we move on. There's a line that is like, I'm trying to understand as a writer, and I want to see if you understood what he he was trying to say, Stephen King. At one point in the final, like in the throes of the final battle, uh, Tom Skerritt says, Johnny says, Donald Rumsfeld. Adam Sandler and Coulter demands you stop. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that line? Do you know what yeah. I'm talking about? What the fuck was that about? Like, what does that mean? I thought he was because it's like the power of Christ compels you. The power of Ronald McDonald compels you. The power of fucking Santa Claus compels you would be an equivalent run. I right. think Stephen King is just picking details of like celebrities that he views as powerful within the zeitgeist and he's a very political dude as we know from twitter so he threw Mm -hmm. in he started with like ann coulter and don rumsfeld people he hates and then in the middle he was like and who do the kids think is of note who's in the zeitgeist adam sandler's still hot adam sandler yeah Uh, 10 years ago (laughs) but i do think it's just a joke of like yeah Uh, random name compels you all right that that in the Saints name of mind. the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, and Peter Griffin already. It's you know, yeah, it's just yeah. that. Yeah, I bit. got 
I got the joke aspect of it. I just <laughs> yeah. thought that the combination of elements, there was something I wasn't seeing. Like there's a reason I was looking a little bit more for like, I had missed the boat that he is actually saying Larry, Moe and Curly. And mm-hmm. there's some connective tissue between the three of them that I wasn't aware of. No, it's just random nonsense because I, that's the joke. I see it now. Very, you know, it was a cringy. threesome. It was a foursome he was in that he was just, mm-hmm. yeah. Spilling that's the tea. What, Sandler, I, Coulter, I need, no, Rumsfeld. No. Uh, well, I think now we can enter our final stage. Now the stand. Duh. where we rank them in order ever lengthening segment um and we usually start at the top or start at the bottom in order to by the way this is episode 17 i think we're at or about at to surpass a number of episodes of this of this podcast predecessor cohen brothers brothers so welcome to unknown territory yeah the 18th episode of a deep dive film podcast anyway uh, I want to start at the top. I think that'll be more tense. Do you agree? Yeah, sure. Okay. Oh, I'm really interested to see how high you put it, no, though, because no. the tone of your voice implies it's in top half. That would be amazing. But here mm-hmm. we go. Number mm-hmm. one, The Shining. The Shining. Number two, Dr. Sleep. Stand By Me. Number three, Stand By Me. Misery. Number four, Misery. Dr. Sleep. That's the unit. That's the that will never change. Yeah, it will. <laughs> All right, number five, the mist. The mist. Hey, there you go. Fivers. Yeah. So the shining and the mist, we mm-hmm. unite on number six, dark tower. I'm gonna go with Running Man. I enjoyed the Running Man. Might be higher than Dark Tower deserves. Mm, I'm looking at you, Dark Tower. Number seven, <laughs> apt pupil. Hey, it's like five again. Apt pupil. Nice. Prime numbers we match on. Number eight, Christine. I'm going to go with the Green Mile. Yeah. That's a big difference. Yeah. Huge difference. For me, that's 15. But um, Christine, Mm -hmm. the evil car, won number eight. Number Mm -hmm. nine for me is Running Man. We've come full circle. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is where I'm going to throw you for loop. Desperation. (gasps) Yeah. Okay. I'm emotionally grappling with that. I still stand by my ranking, but. Interesting. Desperation, number nine. So what's, what was your eight again? Green Mile. And what's your 10? My 10 is Christine. I put Green desper- Mile, Christine, I put desperation, desperation over Christine, which was Interesting. directed by John Carpenter. Isn't yeah. that crazy? My number 10 is Thinner, which was pretty bad. Uh, so now we're getting into the bad ones. So I consider Desperation a pretty mediocre one overall, although I did really like some of the performances. Number 11, Dead Zone. Uh, that one's going to go to 1990s It for me. Which is perfectly all right, because my number 12 is 1990s It. That's where I'm going to put Dead Zone. So Almost a match. Whoop, whoop. So those just dosey doed. Mm-hmm. And now the only piece of new information on my side, number 13, Desperation. 13, I put Dark Tower. So that's Lucky 13. Uh, uh, I rated Dark Tower 6. Yeah, that yeah. feels wrong. You love I that story. You, that. you were talking, you almost can you made me bring it up higher. But six is quite high. Quit six is quite high. 
It might, but I it's mean, hard to go. Green it's hard to, situation is and all then apt pupil is by like evil people, so it's hard to bump it up. There's so but, many uh, things going on. It's that's yeah. why I always thought that this section is stupid, just because it's like oh, it's thumbs oh. up, thumbs down. <laughs> to me, it's a running joke of doing a segment that is a waste of everyone's time that we would never normally do. Like that's you're true. right, this is the exact type of filler segment that we're God. usually above. We, we would not be, do this. We really should be funnier during this segment if we're doing. This this should be hilarious. Dreamcatcher's 14 for me. Uh, 14's thinner for me. Let's at least be fast. 15's Green Mile. Uh, 1979 Salem's Lot. 16 Maximum Overdrive. I hate you forever. It's Dreamcatcher, goddammit. And then 17, the bottom of the barrel. I don't 1979 Salem's Lot, which by I the way, I've gotten so much hate for. And people not even saying it's good. Just saying, I've gotten so many messages of people going, come on, it's not the worst. It's, and I'm like, yeah, it is. It it's the worst less. one. You put it under Maximum, Maximum Overdrive, Overdrive and, and Dreamcatcher. Dreamcatcher. And you shit on a movie more than I've ever heard in an hour uh, with Green Mile. It is still worse than Green Mile. I don't remember you talking about Salem's Lot ever being like, uh, damaging to the, the no, it's to just the boring. culture of America. No, you it's were just the greatest like, this sin is of so all. Boring. boring. Yeah, it needs to die. Uh, I agree. I find that's hilarious, but I reserve that for Maximum Overdrive, just because that movie shouldn't be a movie. <laughs> I like, uh, yeah, but like at it least should, it's an artifact of something. It funny. really is impressive. <laughs> it's impressive that it was made. It was agreed upon. And I'm watching it, and I'm there, and the movie's there, and it's terrifying. And I and we all win somehow. We all win somehow, I guess. So no, yeah, people also got upset. People who love Maximum Overdrive got upset with that rating. But I think, look, uh, I'm not saying I don't love the experience. I'm saying fools. it's a 17, or it's a 16 out of 17, yeah, you know, on, her, on a list of good movies. But that, it can still be fun as hell. Um. Mm-hmm. I, I, right. I I agree. I just don't think it was. That's what was intended. In order to put a little more oomph into this segment, I've liked I've liked the trend of calling our shot. You want to call our shot and decide what to watch next time? Hell yeah! All right. I loaded my old Wikipedia list of adaptations of works by Stephen King. Um. I mean, Creep Show. Still haven't done any of the Creep Shows. We haven't done the Pet Cemetery. Ooh. Um, do we want to step away from the Mick Garris's of the world and not do another TV thing and do a cinema? Tommy Knockers, Langoliers, cinema, cinema's got, whoa, there's a lot of TBA. We're going to be doing this podcast for a while, mm-hmm. but, um, I, I also think we can take a break and do like a mini series of some kind. If you want ever, I could do mercy. I could do cell. Um, no, I, I feel like a movie. I feel like a movie. Uh, we, we have either carries just sitting right there. Uh, we're going to have to do Cujo eventually. Mm -hmm. Um, children of the corn I've never seen. Me neither. Mm. Fritz Kirsch. You mean 1984's children of the corn. Mm -hmm. Synopsis. Supernatural folk horror film. Based on a short story of the same name. I know it's got the little girls with the eyes. King wrote the original draft of the screenplay. 
It's set in the fictional town of Gatlin, Nebraska. I'm sold. Let's watch Children of Children the Corn. Children of the Corn, 1984's Children of the Corn. All right, Children of the Corn. Next time, Children of the Corn. By directed by Fritz Kirsch, and it's mm-hmm. one of the. It's like one of the first. It's like the fifth or sixth, uh, thing that was made based off Stephen King ad- adaptations. Look cool. at that. All right. Until see you in a month, I guess. I love corn. Is it a month? Do we go a whole month between these? Usually. Three weeks to a month, yeah. It's well, there's frame true. rate. There's other ones in between. They well, can yeah. stop bitching about it. And the, you can really see what we're up to when you go to patreon.com. Slash small beans. Slash small beans. We got a yeah. lot of... Uh, see, you keep plugging... A... Uh, you keep sending people to just the Patreon homepage. And it's not yeah, as useful it. as you think it is. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it. It doesn't I build the brand. It's a great webpage. I go to it every day. It's so it's, uh, love yeah and it's been a long time since we said this so if you've listened this long uh it would really it really does move the needle for us if you go on to apple podcasts like the itunes store mm-hmm. and uh toss us a review toss us some stars mm-hmm. and i want to make an announcement okay yeah. it uh, just won't wrap up I, when you're listening to this uh for the patrons Mm-hmm. We have a surprise coming out very soon, within one week's time, maybe even Friday. Um, we're gonna have a. We're gonna have. It better just, be Friday. Yeah, it's gonna be. Are Friday. you thinking you won't make the deadline? <laughs> no, I'm just saying. Yeah, it's gonna be Friday. I just wanted to keep it All suspense. Right. Okay. Good. Thanks. Uh, right. But yeah, we gotta. We gotta. I don't want to tell everything, but just expect something big. In the uh, in the Patreon. That's all. Tack. This has been a Small Beans Endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you.